Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Daily Objective. Uh, we have something to talk about today. What is a fair wage? This is something uh, that's been sort of fed to us a lot growing up, I think. Like, you know, when I think of the movie The Newsies, um, I saw that as a, it's a kid's movie, and it's about a bunch of paper boys rioting for a higher wage, if I recall. And this is sort of, a, this seems to be embedded in the modern world. It seems to be a big part of sort of industrialized society or is it is it inherent or did it become did it become necessary because of government and business being in bed together did it become necessary because of marxism in the indoctrination we're going to get into a lot of this but i couldn't do it alone that's for sure let's welcome a man who is all the way in greece but he's going to be speaking to us using technology nikos sotarikapoulos Hi everyone. So here's a here's a poster that uh, the producer of this show is very good in catching things from real life and drawing philosophical conclusions. So it is about a protest by uh, by some NHS nurses. So NHS is the national healthcare system in the in the UK, and uh, and it said this one. It said, "quote Let's fund our NHS." and get healthcare workers the 15% rise they deserve. So there are plenty of things to unpack here, the, whether NHS is our NHS, but the interesting thing here is that healthcare workers deserve 15% rise. Now, let's put this into perspective and see why this has an appeal. So a nurse in the UK is making anywhere from 24,000 pounds, the pound is slightly higher than the dollar, to 37,000 pounds. And during the pandemic, there was a lot of discussion that now we realize who are the true key workers. And the idea was the key workers are not the bankers, are not the head funds managers, are not the greedy capitalists. The key workers are the people who clean the streets, the people who bring us the food at home, the traffic, the, 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 the drivers, and most importantly, the nurses and the doctors. And to put this into perspective, let's see how a nurse, who everyone agrees that we need nurses and doctors, how it compares to a football player. So the BBC had some years ago a list which you would put your salary and it would compare it with football stars. And the, the way I see it is it should be called something like maybe the envy list or maybe the justice list. Who, who knows? So one of the most well-paid British football players, Gareth Bale, he plays for Real Madrid. It takes, me, it takes him 14 minutes, 14-1-4 minutes, to make the equivalent of what a nurse makes in a week. Or taken the other way around, a nurse would have to work for 727 years, 727 years, to make what Bale makes in a year. So this is usually the narrative that explains why capitalism is inherently unjust. Or someone else might bring up and say, look, Nikola Tesla, who was a benefactor of humanity, died penniless. And Dan Bilzerian's net worth is 200 million. And to be honest, I was surprised. I was expecting more. But apparently, he spends a lot. So the argument is the system is, capitalism is an irrational system and makes no sense because the most important jobs are getting paid low 
and people who don't add much value to our lives are getting paid ridiculously high wages. And the question is, do we have an answer for that? The answer is yes, I'll let you go first. Oh boy, okay. Well, first of all, if, uh, if I was in charge of who gets, like if, if, if everybody's salary was contingent on what I'm willing to pay them, athletes would all be homeless and some <laughs> doctors and nurses would make some money because I need some of them, but uh, I'm not, uh, you know, I don't, I don't lend my eyeballs to many sports games other than maybe the Super Bowl. But anyway, yes, it seems like entertainers and other types of, uh, you know, public figures are, are making a killing while people who do very difficult uh, jobs like doctors or even other low paying jobs like teachers that aren't necessary are barely getting by some of them. I mean, doctors are known to make a decent living the more free a market is, but in any case, um, not nearly as much as, a, as an athlete or an entertainer or a musician, I guess that's entertainment. Um, but who's willing to pay that person? Who's willing to consume that entertainment? Um, who's, willing, who's willing to pay for that product? And since so many people wanna watch the game and relatively few people need the services of one particular nurse, she's going to make a lot less money. Now in a free market, which we have uh, a taste of, but not nearly a, a big enough taste of, we, uh, we, we would see nurses and teachers enjoying an even higher standard of living than they enjoy today. Now, when a teacher goes home, they have uh, Amazon Prime with uh, full of entertainment and free deliveries. When they get home, they have um, a washing machine doing their laundry for them. They have a dishwasher doing these things for them. The reason we have such a comfortable standard of living today in the context of history is because of capitalism, because some people were willing to risk their capital in order to make a killing, in order to make a lot of money. And the reason uh, that teacher turns on the TV and sees somebody on there making millions and millions of dollars is because that entertainer is not turning on their TV to watch the teacher do her dishes at home. You know, there, there is a difference in supply and demand. But I will offer you also that in a free market, if we truly had a free market, if we allow innovators and scientists and businessmen to do their job in a free market, we would see a lot of these unpleasant jobs being eliminated. A lot of uh, jobs, you know, manual labor and things that people don't want to do would actually be replaced with technology. And you might ask, oh, well, then what are those people going to do? They would have much cooler jobs than that because capitalism provides more work opportunities than people that are able to fill them. This has been demonstrated over and over. Um, so the average Joe who people act like they're so concerned over, the average nurse would have a higher standard of living, an easier job, and, um, and yeah, that about covers it. Back to you. Thank you. So where to, where to begin? First of all, they say that they deserve 15% rise. So why 15% and not 18% or why not 300% or why not 1%? So the question here is they deserve by what standard and how can we decide it? So here is the problem that in the cold and, uh, and merciless capitalism, there is in a way some form of justice and the justice is I'm willing to give you this and the more, I, the more people want to watch the show, the more richer we will become. Now, 
turns out not that many people yet are doing this. Therefore, I have to do a second and a third job. But how cool would it be to say, look, I think health is very important, but you know what's more important? Philosophy, because with bad philosophy, you cannot have, you will go back to the pre-industrial age. So I think me and Raka deserve 8,000% rise. Now, obviously, this is not going to happen anytime soon. But the issue is that when the one who pays you is the government, it's easier to make this case because people will tend to say, yes, you deserve it in terms of you do a good job. However, that's, that does not make sense because if you ask the same people, okay, shall we make a GoFundMe for the people who risk their lives during COVID to be on the first line of dissent? They will probably say, no, that's the job of the government. So again, we are turning the table here. Not only we are saying that this is not a moral claim, we will say that the moral claim would be to make the case for freedom, to make the case that actually, you know what, in the private sector, you would experience more justice. Because yes, maybe you are underpaid, but who is to tell? And how are we going to tell it? Are we going to go by majority vote? Because for example, in my hierarchy of values, health is very high. I'm a relatively risk averse person, so I don't like risks. So I'm happy to pay high premiums or whatever would be the equivalent for my health. But here's the thing, every person's hierarchy of value is different. So I can think, for example, I was thinking something the other day, you know, we, we shout at these kids who are going out and going to clubs and we say, oh, you know, you, you're to blame for the second wave. I could think myself of a summer of a particular year in the early to mid 2000s where I was crazy in love and the person I was crazy in love with lived in, in another side of Greece and I would take you know boats, airplanes and travel all the time. At that point, and I wasn't living with my parents so they were away. So I didn't risk passing the disease to anyone even if I would get it. At that point, if you ask me in your hierarchy of values, getting COVID, or you know, living, living this crazy love. I would say definitely crazy love, but that was me. The problem with this quote democracy of, 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 uh, of configuring who gets what is that my hierarchy of values have to be put on the same pot with your hierarchy of values, which might be completely different. And then how do we decide the result? By somewhere in the background, there is force. There is the force of the numbers or the force of we're going to get into power and we're going to extract money from these people and give it to these people. So that's why, my, that's why my message is that not only this is not a moral argument, but what might sound as heartless is actually as moral as it gets because it takes into accordance each person's values and the scare and the, how sacred their life is. Yeah, and anytime we talk about morals, uh, people sort of automatically at this point, I mean, I still struggle with it, and maybe you do as well, we, we think of morality as something detached from causality. Like, morality is like this um, floating standard out there that we should adhere to, and ultimately it will contribute back to our life. But, but remember that justice, it has to do with cause and effect, uh, not trying to cheat reality, not trying to... Um, uh, play God, so to speak, or thinking that your thoughts and your whims are above causality, cause and effect. And um, so you have the moral right to live by your own judgment, to think for yourself and to produce what it is that you want to produce. And sometimes 
you producing will look like you just wearing a uniform and working at someone else's company. You're producing by following their instructions and they're paying you. And it's, it's a, you know, it's a trade of course. Um, and you have the right to follow your own judgment and the business owner has the right to their own judgment. And when it comes to things like medicine, this should be completely privatized. Uh, same with mail delivery, same with any other service that does not involve force. Force should be the monopoly of the government to use in self-defense or to arbitrate disputes. But anything else needs to be privatized so that justice can be served, so that causality can be followed. And that's the moral way for people to live. And that's what, in, by that, by which I mean, that's what life requires. Um, and, you know, people, they, they, they'll make this argument like, oh, no, in a perfectly free market, you'll see nurses starving and you'll see, uh, you know, one billionaire, one trillionaire just swimming in cash while people are dying all around. But I mean, <laughs> it's like, I don't, you don't know which, which like they're, they're setting it up so that the moral and the practical are pitted against each other. So if I say, well, he has the moral right to, uh, to have as much cat to accumulate as much cash as he wants, they'll say, oh, see, your morality uh, leaves a trail of blood. But if you say, well, no, actually his, um, his accumulating all that cash actually benefits the people around him more than any government program ever could, then they'll say, okay, well, that's a practical argument. But morally, there's no reason for him to have this much cash until everyone has, you know, at least a, a great standard of living. And they impose these socialist uh, programs, which lowers everyone's standard of living. Well, almost everyone's. The cronies enjoy a nice a nice uh, cushion, a nice protected position where the government is actually protecting them. Ironically enough, it's the marriage of government with business, often big business, but on the local level, it could even be small business. It's the special favors that politicians grant businessmen that give businessmen this seeming immunity from causality, from competition, which then makes the workers resentful and they, you know, rightfully protest, but what we're missing from this equation is intellectuals to point out it was the violation of justice. It was the violation of causality of, of the moral rights of man. It was the violation of property rights in the first place that created this disparity, that created this uh, rise in resentment between the, you know, the poor and the rich or between the workers and the business owners, the, the capitalists versus the proletariat. It's the, obstruction of justice that brought this about what we need is to return to respect for rule of law for property rights and that of course needs to be grounded in a morality of you know causality a morality uh based in the facts on the ground i'm using uh language here that you know i'm i'm, I'm sort of uh, throwing out some big philosophic words i want to remind people you know this is off the top of my head i might be uh misusing an occasional word here or there this is an opportunity for you to investigate further on your own back and, and and here's one aspect where we are better no one more aspect where objectivism provides a better context even than the austrian economy the austrian economics now objectivism is not an economic philosophy but it has something to say something about economics now the austrian school they're very very good in economics Mises, all these people, very, very good. The problem is that quite often, because they leave morality on the side, they give ground to some criticism that they can't refute, but we can refute. So, for example, the criticism is that 
Well, in, in capitalism, everything has to do with the taste of the people, and most people don't have a taste. So, for example, that's why they would say that uh, if they had read, for example, uh, uh, the founder, they would say, well, Rourke, up to a point, is very, very poor. Now, that's why Rand uses the term, the objective value of something, and the subjective value of something. But by this, it does not mean by subjective that value is in the eye of the beholder. So this is, this is what uh, Rand says. So she says that the good is indeed objective, which means a modern painting, which might cost millions because it's the fashion, is indeed by objective criteria, by criteria of what reality and life requires, is not as good as a, let's say, romantic art that might only cost 50,000, but it's better. However, here's the issue. Although a reality, the good is objective, it has to be discovered by one's mind. We cannot have, who is the most, let's say, we cannot have Leonard Peikoff be like the central planner and says, this should cause this, this should cause this, because he's like the most rational person in the world. He understands the romantic manifesto better than anyone else in the world. So this is clearly not the case. But at the same time, we do not say that, oh, whatever the market price is, that's the objective value, our evaluation of something. So here, what is happening? So you have what is called the, what Rand called the subjective uh, value, which is what is the average of this value as created by free interactions in the market? And again, no one should use any kind of force or coercion to change this. Now, this value might indeed be something that we don't like. And the example I gave is the price of pieces of art, quote, of modern art or postmodern art or however. Anyway, that's not the discussion today. But it does not mean, but because we rationally believe that something is good, we should force it on others. And she has a very nice quote in, in uh, the first essay on capitalism, their non-ideals. She says, a value that one is forced to accept at the price of surrendering one's mind is not a value to anyone. The forcibly mindless can neither judge nor choose nor value. That's why my message is that even if your claim, dear uh, nurses or NHS workers, that your work is undervalued, the solution is not to to, to be paid by a system that forces others to actually pay you. And again, be, different people have different hierarchy of values. That's why even the same people have different hierarchy of values. That's why I mentioned myself who in the summer of 2020 is careful with COVID. The same person in the summer 15 years ago, even if COVID was around, would say my hierarchy of values is I want to experience the biggest romance ever, you know, and I'll risk getting COVID. So let people decide what is valuable to them. But at the same time, we can have a discussion on what is objectively more valuable. And I hope people realize this is not a contradiction. Your comment on this, and then let me say a goodbye word on what is going to happen after the show. Yeah, so the topic of values uh, from the objectivist perspective is pretty... Uh objectivist perspective. It's pretty nuanced. I mean, it's, it, I, I'm, it's not something I've mastered yet. I know uh, Capitalism, The Unknown Ideal is, is a book by Ayn Rand that uh, gets into this more and you got into it a bit just now. So I'm, I'm going to refrain from, uh, em, you know, articulating what you just articulated because it's a bit complicated. Objective value versus, was it social value? Um, 
But the point I made earlier stands. It's that, um, it's that uh, causality is sort of what we need to respect. We cannot cheat by printing money that's not based on any, uh, anything produced. And we cannot just give people something that hasn't been produced, that they haven't earned. Um, I'm reminded of uh, a famous Leonard Peikoff uh, antidote. Anecdote? Yeah, anecdote. He, uh, it, involved, it entails an, an antidote as well. He, uh, he tells of a professor who lectured at his school and talked about how nothing exists and you know, everything's, whatever it was, very, something very modern, a very modern take on philosophy. And then when the lecture was finished, the, le the lecturer asked, does anyone know where there's a synagogue? I need to go uh, do my afternoon prayers. And people were asking, well, why do you need a synagogue for? Didn't you just explain to us that like nothing exists and there's no, there's no rules or whatever? And and the professor answered, well, that's just philosophy. I need to live life. <laughs> and um, yeah, I mean, you know, any, so kind of similarly, I, the way I see this similarity, any child that ever had a lemonade stand understands that capitalism is the way. You mentioned Austrian economics. Like anyone who's ever produced anything and sold it understands that, you know, labor is not a floating concept. Like production is primary. So any child with a lemonade stand understands that capitalism is what works and is just, it is moral. But that same child also was taught altruism gets the final word. So giving to the needy, giving to those that have not produced is where your moral virtue comes from. So this contradiction is sort of, uh, it's, it's in the minds of most and it's in the culture around us. So even though the Austrians dem demonstrably won the debate a long time ago, we still are having this argument about economics and a fair wage and who deserves a raise and all of that because at the end of the day it's an it's a it's an epistemological battle as well as an ethical battle so altruism is the is the monster to slay and who slays this monster better than the anron center uk these days and the anron center uk is going to host a discussion in half an hour I'm in Greek time, so whatever. I think it's uh, seven o'clock UK time. And the topic is Ayn Rand's essay, one of my favorite ones, The Left, Old and New. So we see many people today saying that this mayhem in, uh, in, in the roads and all that stuff that we see in the US is called by quote Marxists. Is this the case? We're gonna discuss it with Andrew Bernstein. So. Check out the uh, London Ayn Rand meetup on the meetup app, or check the, uh, the social media, follow Ayn Rand Center UK on Facebook, on Twitter, see what is happening. And from myself and from Raka, thank you so much for being with us. If you enjoyed the episode, share it, like it, and we'll be with you soon with more interesting topics. Thank you very much. Have a good night.